You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Friday, April 21st. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you are riding with me to Cartersville Soccer Complex for the first of three exciting soccer games for me this weekend. It's all packed in because there's rainouts to make up, and my daughter plays on two teams, so... I have. I'm, this is going to be the maiden voyage of my new soccer camera, so I'm excited about that. And we're back to normal. We're back to normal on the Christian commute. I'm in Dalton in my office, driving home from there. And I have show notes, and we're going to have a regular show instead of an hour-long screed about what's wrong with Charles Stanley. But I hope we learned something from these special episodes, or at least thought through the importance of pastoral qualifications and the importance of calling out to people when you see a wolf like Andy. Today we're back in the Through Seminary series. We're into the class Apologetic Method. And it's another January workshop. I actually took this class at the same time that I took Christian apologetics. I have a question in the inbox about uh, how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how that relates to us. And as always, we have the Bible chapter review. Today's Bible chapter review comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 24 through 27. We're still talking about the interaction of James, John, and their mother with Jesus. And you'll recall last time, through their mother, uh, James and John asked Jesus to sit on his right hand and his left hand when he came into his kingdom. And he says, this is not mine to give, it's the Father. So they got their answer, and the answer was, I guess, pretty much no. But the other disciples heard this, so starting in verse 24, And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John upset the other ten uh, disciples. They, uh, Andrew and Peter and the Judases are over there like, say what? Because they're upset, they're indignant that James and John are essentially trying to put themselves in charge or have Jesus put them in charge. And they get mad. And Jesus goes over there and tells them, not even something to get mad about. You're thinking the wrong way. This is You're having a worldly mindset. And he says the rulers of the Gentiles, which in their immediate context would have been the Romans. The Romans who ruled over Israel. So the Romans had 
uh, prefect there, uh, the governor uh, there, the uh, uh, Pontius Pilate, and he was in charge of a bunch of people. And you know, his house was probably nicer than the other guys' houses. And they ran when he said run. They jumped when he said jump. And even at the lower levels, you'd have a centurion who would be in charge of 100 soldiers. And he would get a lot of respect from those guys. And he would, what, lord it over them. Like, I'm in charge, and don't you forget it. And as we've talked about in previous Bible chapter reviews, very previous to this, recent ones, the world's way of doing things is to try and climb that ladder and get more power and more influence, and that's what you're going after. But in the kingdom, Jesus says, you got to be like a child, or you have to be like a slave. We're not trying to level jump here. He who is first will be last. And he gives an example of himself. He says, we're not going to be that way. It's not going to be that with you guys, uh, the rule, like being a ruler and lording over one another and exercising your authority. You guys need to be like me. He gives himself as the example. He says, just as the son of man did not come to be served. And the disciples recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. He's in charge. And we recognize Jesus is God. He's in charge of the whole world. And he didn't, have, he didn't come to have people be on his right and the left and carry out his bidding. He says he came to be served. And how does he serve? Is it, well, is it walking around healing and feeding people? Yes, in some small way. Uh, big way for them, small way, uh, cosmically speaking. Uh, he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. He just got finished a few verses explaining that he's going to go, be handed over, be executed, be buried, and be resurrected. He's coming to give his life as a ransom for many. And we serve him. We say we serve somebody who lived a perfect life and gave himself as a ransom for others. So we should walk into our groups and our Christian community with a service mindset not trying to become the head Christian, the uh, vicar of Christ or Pope, if you will. And you want a modern day application of that? Who, who's here trying to, who, who listens or who knows somebody who's tried to level jump and become that quote-unquote senior pastor who's over all the associate pastors in the secondary and he's the senior man and everybody works for him and you better hit your KPIs or the senior man will find a new associate pastor and you 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 need you don't you get in that pulpit you go uh, you go in the back room and and uh, put tapes in his tape cases because he's running his tape ministry he's the senior pastor what has happened uh, in Christianity and the little kingdoms people build now all right, let's move on to the question. And by the way, that Bible chapter review didn't even get me to the freeway. Let's move on to the question. Today's question comes from Claudia. Claudia is starting to write in a lot. I like it. I hope she keeps them coming. Claudia from Tennessee. She was at church, and here, come, here came the revival preacher. All right. So the pulpit had been handed over to one of these preachers who comes to preach a revival. Right. The, the kind of revival you schedule. So you have to imagine this is a pocket sermon for this revival preacher that he preaches all around. And revival sermons are always very evangelistic. So he is talking about the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And something caught Claudia's ear 
that didn't sound right. And the guy said this, he said, in the court of heaven, it's just like you were crucified. You died and you were resurrected. And that didn't sit right with her. And then she said she heard Stephen Furtick or somebody like that say it later. And they thought, well, maybe that really can't be right if he's saying it. Hold on a minute. Even Stephen Furtick and the Roman Catholic Church say right things sometimes. But it, did, it doesn't sound right to my ear either. Because what is the biblical doctrine that we've named it? You won't find this, you won't find this term in the Bible. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our place as a substitute. And then we get into another theological term that is true but not in the Bible. Double imputation. Double imputation. Our sins and unrighteousness were imputed to Jesus on the cross and he died for our sins but his righteousness is imputed to us and we are we are judged based on his righteousness but it is not just as if in the mind of the courts uh, or, or in the as far as the courts of heaven are concerned it is it's not like you died you didn't because it was a substitute it's a substitute. So think of think of it in terms of the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. It's not as if you died when the lamb died. No, the lamb died. And the lamb's pointing to Jesus who died for you. Somebody's substituting for you. Payment is being made. And by the way, payment has to be made from something pure. That's why it's a spotless lamb. That is sacrificed. A spotless lamb. If it was just as if you died in the courts of heaven, just as if you were crucified, then that sacrifice isn't worth anything. It wasn't just anybody who could die for the people. It had to be Jesus. Jesus was perfect, sinless sacrifice. He was the only one who could stand righteous before God. If you're dying on the cross, no, no, your, your righteousness can't get imputed. You're sinful. Now, I realize what this revival preacher is trying to say. I think what he's trying to say is when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness and not your sin. And you're not guilty anymore. I think that's what he was trying to say. And I'm, this is me trying to be charitable. But it's a really bad way that he said that. Because, quite frankly, you're not worthy. Yes, you owe. You owe the debt. I owed a debt I could not pay. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. You owe the sin debt. The punishment belongs to you. Jesus takes your punishment for you. So it's not as if you were punished. No, he's punished. It's not as if you died on the cross. He died on the cross. Because Here, let me put it this way. There's nothing you can do to be saved outside of Jesus. Because we know, ultimately, the blood and bulls of goat, the blood of bulls and goats, uh, is not sufficient 
to pay for your sins, cosmically speaking, in the long term. Now, uh, before the cross, in the Old Testament times, in the Old Covenant times, people exercised their faith in Jesus, who was to die on the cross, by faithfully carrying out the Old Testament sacrificial system. They were saved by faith, just like we are. But the only person in history who could die for everyone's sins is Jesus Christ, the second Adam, because we are all dead in our sins in the first Adam. So that is a very sloppy way to describe the atonement. And with all the heresy out there, like with uh, Kenneth Copeland saying we're li little gods and whatnot, to put yourself up in heaven being crucified, I mean, I just want to say, where's, oh, I wish I had a Greta Thunberg uh, button sound effect. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you say that? Yeah. It's just like you were sacrificed. Nope. You're not spotless. So what do we do in baptism? Golly, we're Baptists. This happened at a Baptist church. This is what gets me. We identify with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's all about him. And yes, we will be resurrected. But only because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And we've been reconciled through him. So... Claudia, you were right to question that preacher. But here's my thing. Keep, let me give you some practical advice. You didn't ask for this. Nobody asked for this. Remember, what was it, two episodes ago, I said I knew we were doing some kind of Easter growth scheme week, so I just went to the Presbyterian Church. Pay attention to what's coming and who's coming. It might have been announced that the revival preacher was coming. So let me think. What 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 month is it right now? Uh, it is. It's April. Okay, May is coming up. So Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day weekend is coming up. And if you go to XYZ Generic Baptist Church, you can expect. So, uh, some kind of thing like, all right, who here is from the Marines? Stand up. We're going to clap for you. Who here is from the Army? Stand up. We're going to clap for you. All right. Now we're going to sing your grand old flag. Or God, we're going to sing God Bless America. Or we're going to sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. I get, I, I'm a Southerner. Let me just, I'm going, I'm, this is a rabbit trail off of a rabbit trail. I'm a Southerner. I'm a states' rights southerner. The battle hymn of the Republic was written by Yankees during the Civil War as a Yankee battle hymn. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the grapes of wrath and something about a terrible swift sword. That's the South getting trampled on. Don't sing that song in church. Especially in the South at a Southern Baptist church. What are you doing? Stop! By the way, don't sing Dixie in church either. Just keep all that stuff out of church. 
So it could be anything from as innocuous to you walk in and they have the various uh, service, military service uh, branch flags up in the, in the sanctuary or they might have 10 minutes worth of America worship in church. Since I know that's coming on a day like Memorial Day, I might find myself in the Presbyterian church. Same thing for 4th of July. When I was at the Demonic Church of Freemasonry, Roland Springs, Brother Joe would have us, <laughs> Brother Joe, the hireling Joe Ringwalt would have us stand up and say the pledge. I'm like, what are we doing? Why are we saying the pledge in church? Why do we even have a flag in the sanctuary? You know that stuff's coming. So when they announced that uh, Brother Billy Bob Boray is coming for the revival, I ain't, sorry, I'm your good friend, Brother Billy Bob Boray, Boray coming to preach his pocket sermon. I'm gonna find somewhere else to listen to a sermon that day. You gotta, you gotta anticipate these things coming, Claudia. And what they'll say is, oh, you're gonna be blessed by this guest speaker." No, you're not. And if he's so great, you probably find his pocket sermon on a podcast somewhere. Okay, let's move on away from the inbox. But before I do, don't forget somebody to write into SethDunn88 at gmail.com. SethDunn88 at gmail.com. Or... Dial 470-315-0875. That's the Christian Commute Roadside Assistance Line. The Christian Commute is your theological roadside assistance. Send me your question about Christian theology or apologetics. Keep it short enough for me to memorize. Somebody write in. Yes, somebody. Somebody saw me when, when I was suffering. Oh, it was Jesus, mighty, 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 mighty King Jesus. So somebody, right in. All right, let's move on. Through Seminary Series, we're doing Apologetic Method. So I explained in the last Through Seminary Series episode where I was talking about taking Christian apologetics that I was taking this at a January workshop where you went and listened to the sessions, listened to the speakers, and it was an apologetics workshop, apologetics conference, and then you had some take-home assignments. So attendance was part of your assignment, assignment and uh, pulled pork is calling my name. Bucky's pulled pork is terrible. Uh, always, always, always get the brisket. Uh, somebody, sorry, somebody was... Uh, what was I talking about? Somebody saw me. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Going down to the conference. So you could have up to six hours credit. So I enrolled in Christian apologetics and at the same time, apologetic method. Apologetic method is an academic class. It's one of those things. Uh, apologetics is, is a thing. And then we got to come up with a method to make it uh, academic and uh, put a degree in it. I think a lot of Christians never think about their apologetic method, but those of us who have studied it formally put thought into this. And if you want a good summer, summary of apologetic methods, 
and a little explanation of them, you can Google situational hitting Seth Dunn apologetic method. Situational hitting Seth Dunn apologetic method at my WordPress site, not pulpit and print. This might be a pulpit and pen. gsethdunn.wordpress.com. That's the blog I wrote. It was a paper for this seminary course, a short little paper, and the assignment was to explain what apologetic method we preferred. And my answer was, it depends on the situation. Just like if I go to bat in a softball game and there's, uh, if we're tied and there's a runner on third and there's less than two outs, I'm just going to try to hit a deep fly ball to score the runner. Now, if there's two outs and a runner on first and we're down by a run, I'm going to try to hit a line drive to the right side. If the bases are empty, I'm going to try to hit a slow grounder to third and beat it out because I'm super fast, or at least I was when I used to play uh, slow pitch softball tournaments every weekend. Situational hitting. And it's the same thing with Christian apologetics. Uh, there may be a time when I use uh, presuppositionalism. There may be a time when I use uh, classical apologetics. There may be a time when I use evidentialism. It's, I'm going to let the, the conversation, I'm going to let the discourse guide this. And I want to tell you this, there are people who are downright dogmatic about their apologetic method. And if when you're looking at the various methods and you're talking about apologetic method and dogmatism, it's usually the presupposition people. And they'll, they'll put it on Facebook, hashtag presup. And uh, they're almost always Calvinists, and a lot of them are post-millennial. If you want to see hack job apologetics, find you a post-millennial presup guy. Not because he's using presuppositionalism, because he's talking to himself. So what is presuppositionalism? Well, presuppositionalism is to presuppose the truth of Scripture and to tell the person that you are doing apologetics uh, toward, whether it's offensive apologetics or defensive apologetics, what's the difference there? Offensive apologetics is trying to convert somebody, maybe tear down their worldview if they're like an atheist or a cult member like a Jehovah's Witness. Defensive apologetics is, is, is defending your Worldview. So, well, how do, why are you a Christian? Jesus died. Yeah, but he resurrected, and here's the evidence for it. Okay? Evidentialists do that. Gary Habermas is sort of the go to guy for evidentialist resurrection apologetics. All, you know, when you think about this academically, there's always like a guy. Who's the precept guy, Seth? Greg Bonson. He's dead, but he's the guy. Uh, if it's somebody alive, you might pick John Frame. But the presupposition says, I presuppose a Christian worldview. I'm not going to defend, uh, say, the veracity of the scriptures or the existence of God. What I'm going to tell you is that you don't even have a basis for your worldview. And you, you have a, a very shaky epistemological basis. If, if you're not a Christian, how can you... How can you say this? And a lot of time, or say what you say, and especially geared towards atheists. I don't know how well that would work with Muslims because they have their own scripture they could presuppose. And then you'd have to get into classical uh, apologetics and evidentialism. So what is evidentialism? That's looking at evidence. And it could be looking at historical documents to say, well, all the sources from the time period agree that the tomb was empty. Like, 
it's a historical fact, as best we can tell, that Jesus was crucified. And it's also a historical fact that his tomb was empty and there was a radical change uh, in belief among his apostles that he was resurrected. So the evidence points towards his resurrection. That's evidentialism. You could also use geology and geography for evidentialism. You could and say, all right, look at the earth. Look at nature. It looks like it's designed. Here's the evidence of God. And that's sort of creeping into classical apologetics. That's where you would use a philosophical argument. And you could bring evidentialism into that. Uh, the easiest one that I can think of, or the most popular one that I can think of, is the Kalam cosmological argument. Oh, you're an atheist, you say there's no God? Well, whatever begins to exist has a cause, that's self-evident. Uh, uh, the universe began to exist, therefore uh, the universe has a cause, and what had to be an uncaused cause, and extremely powerful, powerful, and that's what we call God, that the universe began to exist proves the existence of God. If A, then B. A, so B. And somebody said, well, how do you know the universe began to exist? And if you're talking to some uh, college-educated atheist, you'd say, well, you believe in the Big Bang, right? Now, I don't believe in it, but you believe in it? Well, it was a singularity where all matter, space, energy, and time started. There was nothing temporally before that, so there had to be something causally before that. It's God! Or you can say, look at the universe! Look at the universe! It's either accidentally this way, or it's on purpose this way. And you say, well, what's the better explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe? That it's we have a life-permitting universe at all. That if the cosmological constant was off by a hair's breadth. Hair's breadth. I used to think it was hair's breadth, like a, like a little invisible uh, baby, ex, uh, baby bunny exhale. <sighs> no, it's a hair's breadth. It's the length of a tiny hair. Uh, <laughs> not a hair's breadth, a hair on your head's breadth. Uh, it was off just a little bit. The universe couldn't permit life. This is the divine watchmaker uh, principle. That would be classical apologetics. And there's even a uh, method that's kind of like uh, put them all in the bucket and, and see what works. So that's what you'd study. I think the textbook was, was it Faith Has Its Reasons by Rob Bowman? See, I took the classes at the same time, so it's hard to remember uh, which, which textbook went with which which course. But the, the reason for this class was just think about how you're going to present a, a defense for the Christian faith and really think about how you're going to evangelize people and then be able to explain the hope within you. Because I went to Baptist seminary. We're trying to evangelize people and convert them. That's the ultimate goal. We're not going there to put a degree on our wall and, and get a preacher job and say, here I am. I'm Pastor so-and-so in my office and now I'm going to do this for 40 years. I, I know we are out to win souls. I know I complain about the convention a lot. I know I complain about church culture. But listen, I went to seminary so I could minister and we're trying to win souls, okay? And if you're listening to this podcast and you're not trying to win souls, you're doing Christianity wrong. 
And sorry to use the semi-Pelagian term about being a soul winner, like you're going to go out and convince somebody to get saved and argue with them in the kingdom. We know you're not. We know the Holy Spirit's going to do it. We know God decided he was going to do it and found the foundation of the world. We know it's all planned out like pro wrestling. The winner's going to win. The losers are going to lose. But you're out to win souls. And that's why we do all this academic apologetic study. How are we going to win souls? I think... Greg Kokel came that year. Greg Kokel, the guy from Stand to Reason, he's got a podcast. It's pretty good. He can be. He literally put me to sleep, but that's not his fault. I stayed up too late talking to my friends the time he came. But he has a book called Tactics, and for the life of me, I can't remember uh, any of the tactics. They have they have names like there's the Colombo tactic. And I think that's kind of like just one more thing where you keep asking questions and the people answer the questions that leads to another question and the people, you're basically leading them into reasoning themselves into Christianity just like Columbo would ask so many questions to the person would incriminate themselves. There's one called Road Scholar. I think it's being well informed about uh, theology and church history because a lot of I'll call them village atheists or internet atheists. They're not as well informed as they think of about theology. Sort of correcting people. I forget the other tactics, but you used to get that book for 99 cents on Kindle. It's worth a read. Uh, especially if you want to win souls. So, uh, get that. Get that book. And uh, Greg Kokel came and did his talk. And I think... I'm pretty sure that was the conference where I was studying apologetic method. Yeah, I think it was. And then the last workshop of the day, it was on a Friday. So you go till Friday afternoon and then you leave. And I had stayed up real late because it's like you're out in college again in a dorm with, you know, have a wife and kids and you're out with your buddies. You know, just stayed up real late talking and I was I was just dog tired. And I went to the Greg Kokel breakout on like a defense of hell. I think that's what it was. You know, how to make an apologetic because people go to hell. And I fell dead asleep. And I remember like waking up. And you know, you need to wake up when, when you fall asleep at a desk and your head goes back. And then you, you wake like, ah! you, know, you wake up real fast and it's a commotion. I've done that in church a couple times too. Uh, I remember doing that. My friend was like, man, you were asleep. <laughs> so I slept on Greg Kokel. I felt bad about that because I like Greg Kokel. But that was an apologetic method. You may have an apologetic method and you don't even know it. You don't even know it. But at the very least, Christians trying to uh, fulfill the Great Commission and win souls, be familiar with the methods and the various arguments. And uh, don't make an argument you wouldn't believe. That's my personal advice to you. Like, uh, I see it. William Lane Craig makes the argument of the best explanation of the empty tomb, and Gary Habermas does his, uh, uh, his um, apologetic for it and his evidentialism for it. And you're like, see, it, it points to the resurrection. Like, yeah, I already believe in the resurrection. But if I'm talking to an atheist, and they're like, okay, like, the, he was in the tomb, he was crucified, right. And then it was empty, right. They will think of anything other than that. So, for a defensive apologetic, I can say I have a supernaturalist worldview because I believe in God. So, a resurrection, especially a prophesied one, is not out of the question. 
But if you're talking to someone with an anti-supernaturalist worldview, they're more likely to believe that Jean-Luc Picard flew the Enterprise back in time and used the transporter system to transport Jesus' body into his spaceship out of the tomb. They'll believe that before they believe it. Yeah, it must have been the resurrection. So if you have somebody with an anti-supernaturalist worldview and you're trying to use that for an offensive apologetic, I don't think that's going to work out for you. You do the old Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? And I think that's why William Lane Craig likes to combine that with other arguments, especially arguments for the existence of God. Because, I mean, one thing that's super clear if you study apologetics that it's just like atheists don't have a leg to stand on intellectually at all, philosophically. It's just bad. Now, we, we can read in the Bible and the preceptors will tell you, Romans 1, they, they deny God out of their foolish, darkened heart because the fool says in his heart there is no God. Yeah, I know. But what's that look like? Well, it looks like people denying... <laughs> I'm not talking about just Christianity. I'm talking about believing in God. Like the obvious existence of a creator... And it, they have to ignore physical evidence and theological proofs, not to mention the Holy Scriptures. It's just really bad. But just, you know, pay attention to how you're doing and what you're doing. Think about your apologetic method. Read the little article. I think that's helpful. It, it was a nice class for me. It's the kind of class I like to take because I like to think through these things. So be ready to defend your faith. And that's it. Speaking of Defend Your Faith, that was the name of the conference, Defend the Faith. And I took six hours of course credit in January of 2014 and stayed up too late and fell asleep on Greg Kokel. Sorry, Greg. Was that the year my buddies uh, Justin and Philip went with me? I, I, it's, I went down there with Mark Lamprick once, and I can't remember if that was for Defend the Faith or Red Carpet Week. And then the next time I went down there with uh, Justin and Philip, hard to remember, but I had a good time. I, I always liked going down there and just being with other brothers. Somebody might listen to this podcast and think he doesn't like to be with other people or other Christians. He's not a community guy. Like, no, I really like being around fellow Christians. Koinonia, y'all. Koinonia. That's why I get so twerked out of shape when people jack up the church. Because let me tell you something. I, I, I have real trouble having koinonia or being in a covenant relationship with somebody who's going to get up on a church stage and belt out Bethel. I'm not saying that that person isn't saved. I'm saying that person is a milk Christian at best. They just come on. But thank you for listening to The Christian Commute. Uh, I uploaded three episodes last night, and since I got my soccer camera working after a lot of back and forth with the help desk, I imagine I'll be on the computer tomorrow and tonight. So if I'm around the computer, I might upload this episode on a timely basis, but you guys can chew on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday episode. Looks like a four-episode week for the Christian commute. I hadn't had one of those in a while. So I am rolling into Cartersville here. Let me uh, let me end the show, find something to eat, and then I'm going to go watch a soccer game. Have a good weekend, you guys. God bless. And, I'll, and remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. 
Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.